Before we get started, I wanted to mention that on June 27th at 5 p.m., Ahmed, Ellie, and I will be at Think Coffee in New York City, and we would love for you all to stop by, whoever can. It's at 73 8th Avenue in New York City, so come hang out. Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. I'm Saudi American and a lesbian. I'm bi trans Lebanese and Ahmed. Ahmed's here. Hello, hello. This is Ahmed from the Arabic uh, side of the podcast. Uh, I've been on previous episodes, so I'm Iraqi American and gay and what else? And a, ho- and a host of podcasts, I guess. And Ellie lovingly calls him Stupid Sexy Ahmed because his episodes are very popular. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we are talking to Tarek, uh, who Ahmed recently had on the Arabic side. Tarek, can you introduce yourself? Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. It's good to be back so soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Tarek Zaidan, and I'm, uh, among other things, the executive director of Halim, which is a Lebanese-based uh, LGBT rights group founded in 2004 in Beirut, Lebanon. Huge fan. I've been actually following y'all since, uh, I think it was like 2007 when I was in college. Like, I think someone, one of your members came and gave, by a, gave a speech in my college. Oh. oh we've had so many members across the years. I mean... It is the first, you know, it's the first in the Middle East, North Africa region. And uh, even though it was founded in 2004, there'd been uh, some form of queer activism in and around Beirut since, you know, the 70s and during the Civil War. And it intensified just after the Queen Boat incident, the infamous Queen Boat incident in Egypt in 2001. That's when things got really heated up in Beirut. And ironically, 14, even more, like 17 years later, uh, a Lebanese band performed in Egypt and an Egyptian guy raised a, a rainbow flag and, you know, uh, it intensified there. So Egypt and Lebanon have been going back and forth on this gay rights issue, getting inspiration from each other for two decades now. Well, I didn't realize that. So we talked to Joseph before from Hillem. So it's really yeah. it's really cool to talk to you. And yeah, I first heard about Hillem from Ellie. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, like she said, she's been following you for a long time, you, the, your organization. Before uh, you were studying at Harvard, can you talk about that? What were you studying? What were you doing specifically? The whole reason why I went and I got my master's degree, which I was very uh, fortunate and lucky uh, uh, to uh, have the opportunity to do it, was because I had gotten back to Lebanon after uh, a long way away. and. My chosen profession at the time, uh, I thought, you know, was uh, as a kid was going to be uh, in politics. It was going to be in sort of wide-ranging reform. I was with think tanks for around 10 years of my life. And it was only until I got back into Lebanon in 2012 that I sort of reconnected to 
my activist roots and reconnected to the community here and decided that um, this is where I want to be because uh, this is the kind of change that I want to see. This is the kind of change I believe in, grassroots from mm -hmm. the bottom up. I didn't think that uh, top-down change through the work that I was doing with uh, you know, Carnegie and Brookings was in any way effective in the issues that I really cared about a lot. I thought that, that you know, change needs to, to, to happen uh, at the grassroots. So uh, I, uh, after working for like four or five years with Helen and sort of restructuring the organization and uh, sort of trying my best to bring it back to the its roots, it's the reason why it was created. I discovered that a lot of people in my country and in the region, myself included, had you know a lot of gaps when it came to how are we going to integrate LGBT rights into the mainstream human rights movement? How are we going to integrate gender and sexuality into the greater fold of civil society, not just in Lebanon, but in the region as a whole? And so I uh, really thought it was a good idea to go back to school and to sort of fill in those gaps, fill in gaps that had to do with you know, strategic management of NGOs, uh, leadership, uh, human rights law and advocacy, sort of mapping the topography of the global LGBT rights movement, seeing how the Middle East and North Africa region can be a very vital part of, uh, in it. We'd been, you know, neglected and haven't been you know, included in it as, as uh, much as we should have, uh, only because it was very, very difficult to mobilize and very difficult to do this kind of work in our region. But moving forward with all of the work that's been done for the past you know, uh, decade, I, I think I joined at just the right time for this transition to take place. Yeah, and I think being in Lebanon especially helps since everyone, at least nowadays, seems to see Lebanon as the refuge for LGBTQ people in the Middle East. It yeah. is and it isn't, yeah. Yeah, it's oh, like, okay. but, definitely seen that way. Yeah, because like several people we talked to are like, oh, come to Beirut, come hang out with us here, even though like no matter where they live, because Beirut is commonly seen as that safe hub where people can let their hair down. Yeah, but, but it's specifically Beirut. Yeah. And, and specifically certain areas and certain bubbles in Beirut in which you could, oh. you know, be completely yourself. It's like everywhere else. Your shield uh, is your privilege. The way the, that privilege manifests uh, in Lebanon is very similar to the way it uh, manifests everywhere. It has to do with class. It has to do with... Yeah. Uh, power and ability to navigate the system. And there's a lot of really nuanced, incredibly, you know, fascinating reasons by how Lebanon came to be what it is for the LGBT community. I mean, the fight here is raging right now. It's a testament that no matter how far you go, there's always, always somebody trying to, trying to take your rights away. And you guys are witnessing this in the United States as we speak. Yeah. So uh, this kind of work is, is a constant struggle. It can't be, there's no way that we could ever, you know, put our suitcase down. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. uh, you have to remain vigilant. And for a while, it seemed that Lebanon was sort of headed towards this, uh, or Beirut, I should say, was, it was a haven for uh, the community inside the region. But even that seems to be eroding. Oh, okay. um, like a pendulum. We're fighting very, very hard. Yeah. And we're fighting very, very hard so that we don't lose it. Because if we lose the work and the progress that we've made here, a lot of it would be irreversible for a very long time uh, to come. So that was, uh, was going to be my question. 
my impression, I don't know if my impression is somewhat skewed, but is it is it eroding? Like, yeah, because I have been, I feel I've been hearing more and more news in the last two years about like a, a or queer type of issues out of Lebanon. Is it, is it eroding or is it just because there's more visibility than some issues that has always been there are coming to the surface? Well, like, what do you think about that? To be honest, uh, it's a bit of both. On the one hand, you have, uh, you know, a system, a political system that is reacting to many of the triumphs that have happened over the past five years, particularly with with the Lebanese judiciary. You know, f- uh, five years ago, we decided that we weren't going to go down the legislative uh, reform route for many reasons. Uh, one, because uh, we didn't have parliamentary majority. Two, because politicians were very, very squeamish about supporting LGBT rights and being then punished uh, come election time. And second, because we ran a very, very uh, palpable risk of uh, should we have opened the topic of LGBT rights in a parliament that hasn't been prepped and hasn't been properly advocated with, uh, we ran the risk of having what is currently a colonial era contra naturam penal article that states that uh, sexual acts against the order of nature are punishable by up to one year in prison, we might rerun the risk of having that change and go back to a specific anti-sodomy or a specific anti-same-sex relations law. So we didn't want to open up that can of worms. We thought that uh, anyway, so many of the arrests that happen in Lebanon don't happen because people were caught doing any form of sexual activity, much less a natural one that it was people were being arrested for the way they looked, the way they, they dressed, their mannerisms, and that what was required was a shift in values. And so we worked on creating a new kind of jurisprudence within the judiciary. We wanted to reimagine the role of the Lebanese judge as a custodian of democracy that also you know, saw within uh, his or her duties to protect minorities Uh, not just safeguard the status quo. Uh, On the other hand, uh, Ahmed, so much has changed in the region post-Arab Spring. So much has changed in the, you know, in the aftermath of the Syrian war. So much of Western powers who were, you know, starting to look at our part of the world with a development lens, starting to see whether there was going to be any, you know, forward movement. Uh, saw, you know, the military return in Egypt, saw, you know, complete breakdown of the state in Syria, and went back to looking at this part of the world through a security lens again, which meant strengthening security institutions like police, like uh, army intelligence, like you name it, you know, counterterrorism bureaus, uh, against, uh, you know, potential terrorist uh, threats. Problem is, when you strengthen security apparatus in countries that don't have a robust uh, legal system, that don't have, uh, you know, respect for human rights and and sort of any access to justice and any checks and balances, minorities end up feeling the brunt of these sorts of policies. Another policy that's related to why Lebanon is all of a sudden seen such a, you know, a destination for LGBT refugees particularly is because of the presence of UNHCR here that works largely with the Syrian refugee community. Now, you know, the presence of Syrian refugees, it's, it's no joke, has been one of the ways that the Lebanese economy has been able to survive because of so much money coming in in order to support refugees, money that is undoubtedly fueled by European anxieties, 
uh, of these refugees ending up in boats uh, going north towards European borders. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of lax and a lot of leeway given to by now comically corrupt uh, Lebanese government in order to uh, maintain the status quo. And this has emboldened a lot of, uh, you know, different bureaus inside a very dysfunctional, very dissociated Lebanese state in order to start not paying, uh, not, you know, paying uh, any uh, respect towards citizens. Uh, you might not know, but there's no such thing as a unified security force in Lebanon. Uh, so many of the different security bureaus are highly politicized. Some of them are at odds with one another. Internal security, general security, the cybercrime bureau, army intelligence, all of these different bureaus don't necessarily coordinate, don't necessarily see eye to eye. And if you make any breakthroughs with one of them and build any sort of functional relationship, that doesn't mean that the other won't come knocking on your door trying to shut you down the next day. So all of these very complex factors are at play right now in which on one hand, we feel like the community here is much stronger. Uh, we have allies in many you know, segments of power within the Lebanese society, the judiciary, the private sector, uh, uh, health sector, uh, you know, even, even government, even parliament. There's a, a few parliamentarians who have come out for human rights, for LGBT rights in the past few years. Uh, but on the other hand, you were also dealing with a resuscitated sort of security apparatus that is taking the law and, by extension, people's lives into their own hands. A lot of that sounds, uh, well, not the corrupt, corruption part, although sometimes, a lot of it sounds a lot like what's happening in America, too. We, like, originally, we a lot of the work was local, with the local governments, through the judiciary, and the judiciary eventually became sort of the key way to influence policy. And if, and when there was a friendly executive in office, we got that too. But as you said, it also made them targets. Here we face the same sort of pushback. Some of the disassociation was not between individual departments, but in, on the state level here. So there's a lot of parallels. And the danger, of course, of not having parliament means that no laws means that uh, judges can, at least here, can be overrided by law by lawmaker decisions or executive decisions can be changed by the next executive or parliament again. The way LGBT rights and, you know, our bodies and our lives are politically dispensed, both in the U.S. and in the region, are remarkably similar, but sometimes tend to be, you know, they tend to flip-flop in the U.S., here, uh, and you can witness it a lot, most, you know, clearly in a place like Egypt, you know, LGBT people, their lives, their bodies, their, their, their sex lives are used as, uh, as, you know, periodic distractions for the population uh, so that the state can, you know, either pass a controversial set of laws or divert attention from an unpopular policy. I mean, the grinder ban, which you guys want to talk about and we'll go into it at length, is, uh, you know, suspiciously and nefariously timed during one of the most unpopular and severe austerity measures that the Lebanese government is currently, you know, enacting in Beirut. In the U.S., you know, we've seen uh, a current, you know, this, this announcement by the Trump administration saying that they're about to embark on a global decriminalization campaign for LGBT rights, while at the same time they've been eroding the rights of our trans siblings uh, uh, left and right within the United States. And yep. it doesn't take a genius to read through the lines to see that so much of the coverage around uh, this new uh, this new announcement is you know fixated upon Iran and fixated upon creating you know or sort of sowing the seeds of a new kind of discussion 
and sort of highlighting Iran's uh, dismal, disgusting record on human rights and particularly LGBT rights. But when you politicize it this way, you run the risk of doing a lot more damage than uh, than you w- think you would. You know, uh, in certain places, pushing for decriminalization is not a very good idea at this point in time. Uh, mm. Lebanon included. This politicization of our cause is really, really dangerous and oftentimes ends up hurting us more than anybody else. Uh, and really, really needs to, we need to be incredibly vigilant and watch out for each other's backs, you know, across mm-hmm. the Atlantic and across the Mediterranean in order to make sure that such policies that are being enacted by all of this resurgent populist governments uh, don't end up having a very harmful, long-lasting effect. Uh, for those who don't follow United States politics as closely, this is Donald Trump's criticism of Iran is a part of a larger push towards a war with Iran that has been discussed within uh, United States media, basically because he's uh, having a lot of troubles with the uh, Mueller report and he's becoming more and more unpopular here, there's more and more talk of going to war with Iran. Well, <laughs> we kind of heard about it too. <laughs> yeah. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, I hope it doesn't happen, but it's so, I mean, it, it's it's so predictable, it's getting boring. Right, you know, whenever yeah. somebody gets caught with their pants down, they start a war uh-huh. somewhere in the Middle East. You know, like I wish somebody would just start a war, you know, for the good old fashioned reasons, you know, like oil. (laughs) (laughs) Oil, money, power, cascading alliance failures, the usual. Yeah, what? All of that, yeah. It's just so sadly predictable. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I always feel like there's always a segment out here, at least, where like, well, why don't we? And then, like, every sane person says, have you. Like read a history book about the past fifty years of United States interventionism and anything, it's always turned out badly, especially for the people in the region, and less so for the United States, but still badly. I mean, it's it, there's no way to predict where it's gonna go. You know, uh, that's the that's the thing with conflict is that you think you're gonna say mission accomplished, and then you realize uh, nothing was accomplished, and the aftermath yeah. just never ends. So. Uh, yeah. So that brings us to the grinder ban. Oh yeah, so back to grind. Back to so is okay. So was the grinder ban related to? Is this part of a bigger picture thing, like where a lot of similar kinds of apps and things like that have been banned, or has this been focused on grinder specifically? No, this is definitely sort of the latest episode in a series of attacks against the community that are being propagated by the state and by non-state actors, particularly uh, extremist religious organizations here in Lebanon. It started really in 2017. And as I told you, it's as if the the system is finally looking at the LGBT community in in, in Lebanon saying, oh, oh, you're serious. Uh, You're serious about this rights thing. Because, you know, they're not closing down bars. They're not closing down, you know, drag shows. God knows there's a lot of those around town. And I hope they continue and they grow. They're specifically targeting groups. They're talking about rights. They're talking about change, talking about policy. And those are the ones that are seen as the most, uh, you know, threatening. And so it started in 2017 with the closing Halem organization's uh, Idahot celebrations. And then again, the year after, they closed down Beirut Pride, which is a series of events that's done once a year uh, here in Beirut. They then also... 
closed down uh, the Nadwa conference, which is run by our sister organization, the Arab Foundation for Freedom and Equality. All of these sort of public events were shut down by members of the police, whether it's internal or general security, based upon complaints done by groups such as the Association of Islamic Scholars or the Catholic Church's Media Center, who, you know, have chits with the government and who then make a phone call and say, this is unacceptable. Police officers show up and close down the event. Uh, we also, we've been witnessing, you know, an alarming increase of such attacks. And this was not the first time that they attempted to ban Grinder. We heard a couple of months ago that there was an attempt, an illegal, unlawful attempt by the Ministry of Telecoms in order to issue a memo to have it banned. And uh, not a lot of the, most of the internet uh, service providers did not comply with that order because it was uh, illegal. It was not issued by a judge. It was issued by a minister of telecoms. So they were not legally bound to it. This time, they actually did their their, uh, homework because it just so happens that a few months ago, Lebanon passed a very controversial law and it, that took place, that took an effect in January, that said that uh, the Ministry of Telecoms, and in particularly the Cyber Crimes Bureau as well, has the right to stop any website on uh, access to any website from Lebanon for a month mm-hmm. and extendable for up to an additional month without any judicial uh, due process. And this is, you know, uh, claiming that this is a counterterrorism thing or this is a, you know, a safety and security issue. However, we, we you know, uh, obtained copies of the uh, uh, memos that were sent, and it very clearly says from the, uh, the ISF Cybercrime uh, Bureau that the reason why www.grinder.com was uh, suspended was because it turns out that this site provides opportunities for uh, gay and bisexual men to uh, meet and to set up romantic and sexual dates or meetings. Ironically, the, I was very surprised that they mentioned uh, bisexuals in the memo. Uh, yeah. I, didn't I guess visibility efforts are working. Right. That's yes, strangely yes, they, inclusive. They not, they've been le- learning well about you know, not to contribute to, you know, by erasure. But... Uh, <laughs> And unfortunately, uh, this, it, is, it is a very clear, you know, homophobic attack because right. nothing in the Lebanese law says that gay and bisexual men or women can't meet, you know, right. and uh, <laughs> uh, there's, you know, uh, one, two, the article, it doesn't specify adult consensual same-sex relations as contrary to the penal code. It just says unnatural sexual relations which okay. could be anything yeah so it's really, there's really absolutely no legal grounds for this and we're going to fight it obviously we're going to fight it in the in the courts uh, where we where we always take the fight first mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to you know uh, take a stand and saying that this these kinds of attacks are no longer going to be tolerated we are going to stand our ground and we're going to gather our allies and make sure that they know that there is a ceiling to how much the community will handle in terms of this kind of discrimination and uh, targeting. So yeah. uh, stay tuned for more on that in the next coming weeks, I hope. So the ban itself, it, are they just blocking the website or are they doing more to get around that? Because at an ISP level, a block is very simple to do. They just don't resolve it and yeah, and they stop the traffic. Yeah. 
and I'm not sure if it makes a difference, but Grinder also is not a website website. It's just an application. So I don't know, like, is like how how does it work? Does the app just not open, or is it just gone from the app store? I guess. Well, I'll, well, you guys will will know a lot more on the techie side. But what how it was explained to me that stopping this particular IP address also stops the ability for individuals in Lebanon to access the app on Lebanese soil using Lebanese internet connections. So, and the way it it rolled out is that this memo binds. You know, the state ISP, uh, Ogero, it binds all of the different mobile carriers, so you can't access it on 4G. And it, But in Lebanon, there's multiple, you know, smaller ISP providers, some of which operate illegally, some of which I don't think even read the memo. So it's going, it might take months for this memo to completely uh, roll out. Yeah, and but I do know fact that all three major internet providers in Lebanon have complied with this memo and have, as of Monday, began blocking access to the app for users. If it's a simple IP, then then anyone with a uh, VP, uh, VPN of any sort, like that, are typically used uh, to security or privacy yeah. purposes, will get around it. So it only impacts those without the money to or knowledge to get one of those. And while they are fairly low cost, it is still... Well, um, that, and that's a lot of people. But yeah. it is ultimately a very classist move. It only affects people without the, the currency of money or currency of knowledge needed to get around it. Because similar bans have gone down in Egypt. VPNs were usually answered there. Of course, there's uh, yep. the more infamous examples of Iran. But again, anyone who mm -hmm. wants to get around it, VPN or a relay server, if you want to be, be a little less obvious about it but still we've we've you know made that knowledge known through our networks we've put it on our page to make sure that people know which uh, VPNs we trust which are the ones that they can download and some of them offer some free service but most are paid the real danger here is that apps like grinder really i mean what they really do other than you know make it easier for people to hook up is that they break the isolation of so many queer people living in and around this region, a lot of whom don't have the privilege and the ability or, or to access public places where queer people gather, that don't live in urban centers. We as NGOs use many of these apps frequently in order to dis disseminate security information, disseminate sexual health uh, information. So this, this ban is a lot more sinister than just stopping a bunch of uh, gay and bisexual men from getting it on, you know, there's yeah. this is a part and parcel of how we as a community in this part of the world have adapted and survived and tried to use whatever resources at our dis at our disposal to be able to uh, provide people with the services and the health and the knowledge that they need. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more nefarious and a lot more destructive of a move than one might seem, one might think. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's why we really, really need to fight it. We need yeah. to make sure that we stand our ground. Uh, this actually runs shows a lot of parallels to the bar raids of the 70s and 80s in the United States, especially after the AIDS crisis became a thing, because bars were everyone congregated and everyone had a common link in the community. So that was where also where information was distributed and social services had their start for the gay community. So it sounds like a very similar Absolutely. attack. Absolutely. Yeah. Like a, yeah, like a modern Absolutely. era. Like a modern era uh, version rate. of that. Wow. Uh, but uh, 
Oh, well, when, when they when they try bar raids, they get uh, Stonewall, so they should be careful. Uh, yeah? No <laughs> yeah. kidding. <laughs> we, we, I, mean, I just heard about the new statue for Marsha and Sylvia that's going to be unveiled in New York City. I can't tell you how happy I am. Though, I mean, those two ladies remind us of what Pride used to be yes. and what Stonewall and not just Stonewall there were so many Stonewalls before you know New York Stonewall but mm -hmm. th those two ladies are just so iconic we've always been able to open a window every time they close a door and and get in anyway the real importance of decision to take a stand is that we shouldn't have to every single time they close a door we have to look for a window in order to get in you know, we should be able to get through the door like everybody else. So and I think it's time that we start testing, you know, the limits of tolerance of the system and see how far we can go. That's how activism works. Mm -hmm. You know, you take a step mm -hmm. and you see how it goes. If you if you get punched, you take your licks and you sit, you know, live to fight another day. And if you get away with it, you take another step later when you think it's the best time to do so. And uh, onwards and upwards. Uh, uh, it's a pity we can't throw shoes at, oh. <laughs> at the way that they did in Stonewall. I know. Uh, you know. Too bad we can't throw shoes virtually. Wait, isn't that what Twitter uh, is all about? I guess that word. is what Twitter is. <laughs> Twitter is our throwing shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, can we tr throw regular shoes or is it specifically high heels? I think high heels would Whatever. do more damage. I mean, high heels would do more damage. I think Whatever's that more aerodynamic. Yeah, aerodynamic, it has the spike. <laughs> <laughs> I know you mentioned you just brought up New York. So actually, can you talk about what's going on with Helm in a few weeks, like June 25th? Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm very, very excited and very happy to be uh, going to uh, World Pride in New York and uh, a great, amazing bunch of friends uh, who live in the city were so generous to suggest doing a fundraiser for uh, uh, Halem uh, in New York City. It's going to be at an amazing restaurant in uh, Brooklyn called the Lama Inn on the night of the 25th. And we, uh, it's going to be, you know, like a dinner and a really, and a really cool party. Uh, I, we're still sort of figuring out uh, uh, who's going to emcee it and uh, who's going to be there. But uh, we're okay. going to, you know, uh, release that information uh, shortly. But I'll be there as well. It's also... We're um, very thankful to other groups from the region who are fighting the good fight uh, in the U.S., particularly Tarab uh, NYC, who are like our siblings yeah. from across the pond. They're helping out with this fundraiser as well, and I'm so excited to go and see them and hopefully, you know, crash in on their parade on the 30th. Yes. And uh, see a pride parade, hopefully go back to what it used to be, which is a lot more angry, a lot more political, and a lot less commercial. Yeah. Which I think is the spirit that we need to keep, um, you know, uh, keep burning bright. And uh, mm -hmm. it's the spirit that started this whole thing anyway. So we, yeah. we can't lose it. Yeah, exactly. But, and if we are angry and, and political, we can still drink during Pride though, right? For sure. I think it enhances <laughs> the anger, yeah. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pride has always been about riots and poor decisions. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about the only co the only consumerism <laughs> will be the purchase of alcohol. 
<laughs> we gotta support the vodka brands that are LGBT friendly. True, yeah. There, yeah. We, there we go. <laughs> That's very yeah. self-serving of us. I love it. As long as they don't take over the parade, yes, we'll drink the vodka. Absolutely, but, yeah. Know, when Pride is sponsored by, you know, 16 different vodka brands, you, you need to start asking yourself a couple of questions. Exactly. Like, where are we really going? Yeah. You're like, I just want to drink your stuff. Please go away. We're going to be in New York the day after the Hella fundraiser. So it'll be it'll be fun to hear about it. Yeah, so. I would love to meet you guys in person. That would be amazing. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. The guys that are working on this on the ground are doing an amazing job. My, my friend Sahar is amazing. So uh, oh, I hope awesome. to see you guys there and tell you all about it. Nice. If I'm awake. Uh, yeah. We don't need, I don't think we should sleep this entire time. But <laughs> I know, easy to say before the fact. We can take turns not sleeping. We can take turns. <laughs> yeah. Do you know um, Hilal from Tara? Yes. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yes, I do. Uh, I'm excited to see email. him. Oh, you did? Nice. It'll he's... be great for us to all be in one place. For yeah, one. he's he gives the best hugs. He does give good <laughs> hugs. I agree. Yeah, it'll be really great. And we'll, yeah, we'll figure out a place to meet. It'll be it'll fantastic. Be um, and yeah, we heard that several people from Beirut are coming for this. Exciting. Yeah, the, the very aptly named emigration. Name considering the status quo. But I don't know if any others are going. There's a, ma- a bunch of amazing queens that are, you know, Middle Eastern or North African descent in uh, New York City. I can't wait to see see them. I can't wait to you know watch them perform. Yeah, uh, yeah drag is is a is becoming a really 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 big deal here and a very big part of our culture. So I'm very happy. Everyone listening, if you're there on the 25th uh, in New York, if you can go to that Helen fundraiser, just know that it's happening. Um, see you there. Yeah, go meet Tadek. He's cute. <laughs> any any last thoughts, Ellie, so, Tarek, Ahmed? Yeah, so one thing that, uh, so I, I instituted a new uh, segment in, in on the Arabic side, which is like basically allowing the guest to ask me a question. So Tarek has asked me one of the best questions so far. He he asked me like, how, is it, how has it been the experience of us, if we can claim that, like connecting like uh, people and organizations and activism queer on queer issues in the in the MENA region to like queer MENA folks in the US and elsewhere. And and I was like, yeah, you know what? Like I don't think I think that even in the US and and Canada and everywhere we have talked to so far, mm-hmm. the, it's, there's not an established community. There is a community being formed as we speak. So that's why it's like not there. The, the, there is no establishment to connect to. We are forming the establishment. That's so true. Yeah, like, I've noticed that too. Um, like we, we've always, as basically LGBT folk in America, we're always sort of accepted in the white organization, white run organizations. But we don't really have a place in them, and we don't have a real forum for issues. We can't. We can bring them up, but the moment it starts diverting resources from whatever their causes are, it, we become a lot less welcome. So I'm very glad that we are finally showing some sort, some signs of organization within the United States. But mm-hmm. also connecting to our uh, folks back home is just really gives me hope, you know, because 
I'm, I've always been fed my whole life. This whole, uh, the whole line of, oh, you're so lucky you, your parents immigrated. If you didn't, you would be in the closet and there would be no hope. But this, this changes that sort of dynamic. It's like, well, there is hope. There are people who are fighting the good fight and they're not just, you know, white people coming from the United States. For sure. I think you guys really, really, um, especially with this podcast and initiatives like this, are playing an incredibly important role because, you know, the problems that we're facing are increasingly global and they're increasingly, you know, uh, have this sort of uh, snowball effect from one part of the world to the other. And uh, we really need to start figuring out spaces you know, non-commercial spaces by which we could connect and talk and share information. I think we have a lot to teach one another and a lot of resources and knowledge that we can share in or because, you know, so much of the, the dynamics are the same, even though the challenges tend to be different. So I look forward to, you know, more organization on this side of the pond, as well as in the U.S. and maybe hopefully a uh, conference or a summit or, or, or uh, you know, uh, a really good party like a convention or a big, I mean, for sure, yeah. you know, uh, I'll take uh, Arak over uh, Pride Vodka any day, but um, <laughs> the figuring out ways where we can all meet one another and sit and talk and build power across, across borders and divisions, I think is key for yeah. facing what's coming. I think so too. That's really the way that we're going to fight everything is uniting with each other what else yeah and something one component of this podcast that i just absolutely love is the two languages i love that there's an arabic side thanks to ahmed i think that's another way that um you know we have been able to connect with more folks internationally and i really appreciate that so thank you ahmed yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you thank you all right well uh thank you all for listening and thank you Tadek, so much for your time this was amazing And thank you for being on both sides of the podcast. (laughs) My pleasure. Please, like, uh, love to meet you guys in person in New York. Uh, If you ever need anything, don't hesitate to let me know. This has been an absolute pleasure. Loved it. I'll keep on tuning in and listening uh, every single time you guys have a new episode out. Yay! Yay. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, we can't wait to meet you. Tadek, how can people uh, contact you if they want to? Um, Well, for uh, usually right now, uh, I should have probably told you mm-hmm. this um and uh, our website uh, was attacked uh last year by some organization claiming to be isis we're not sure if it Whoa. is but we did get a nice message so we're cur- currently reconstructing the website from the ground up uh it should be out in a, in a month or so oh, completely brand new yeah so it's going to be great but, so, but you can contact us on our facebook page and on instagram uh anytime uh, just send a message and you know, the staff uh, uh, and, and Halim's volunteers will either direct you to me or if you have any questions, we'll uh, get a, get that answered for you immediately. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and you all can contact us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. And then we have a website, thequeerarabs.com. And our email addresses are thequeerarabs at gmail.com. And since Ahmed's here, I'll let you plug yours. The queer Arabs in Arabic at gmail.com. And uh, I'm also on Twitter, but my Arabic Twitter, I think my Twitter is only in Arabic. Like, yeah, so I don't know. If you speak Arabic, it's Ahmed bin Barnam Jirmim al Arabi. But if you don't, I guess you should just follow the queer Arabs on Twitter. 
Yeah, and if you come, if you go to the Queer Arabs Twitter, we have the Arabic one pinned to the top, so you can follow that one too. Oh, awesome! All right, well, thank you all so much for listening. Talk to you all later. Bye. Bye.